Welcome to Living Catholic, the weekly webcast from the Diocese of Birmingham, where we engage Catholic leaders to explore how we can live in our Catholic uh, faith and our life in Christ faithfully and with joy. I'm Dr. David Anders, Director of Education and Lifelong Formation. Today, I'm speaking with Father Jonathan Howell, parochial vicar at Holy Spirit Parish in Huntsville, to talk about how our parish community can live out its life as a family of families. Father Howell has a lot of stories and insights to share on this topic, having grown up locally in a big, happy Catholic family and in serving many local Catholic families as a priest. Father Howell, welcome to Living Catholic. Thank you, sir. Good to be with you. I'm so glad you could you could be with us. So, you know, the topic of today's show is that the, the Catholic parish is a family of families. And so we were kicking around in the diocese about who's the perfect person to interview. And uh, you're, kind of, uh, you're kind of famous as a representative of Catholic family life, right? Because you came from a, uh, a pretty large Catholic family. Um, how many siblings were there all together? Yeah, people love to ask that. Normally we always say, oh, I'm from a big family because you get tired of the reaction of, of so many kids. But I have seven brothers and six sisters, 14 of us. Wow. Wow. 14, 14 Catholic children growing up in your home. So how did that experience of, of family life influence your relationship to Christ and ultimately your vocation to the Catholic priesthood? Sure. Well, family is obviously where we where we first receive the faith. You know, our parents, I was three weeks old and they brought me to be baptized. And uh, that's where we first received the seed of faith. Um, the church tells us that, that the family is, is the domestic church. And so our first experience of the church is, is within a family, praying within a family, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And hopefully being formed by, by the example and, and goodness of our mom and dad, imperfectly, right? I mean, because all families are imperfect. Uh, but it is where we receive the the seed of faith, which is nurtured throughout our life. Yeah, so I take it you you had good Catholic parents who gave you a good formation. They taught you the faith. They prayed with you. They brought you to the sacraments. Um, and, uh, uh, and so that was the seed. That was the beginning. But then as you were growing older, um, your own family life, I'm sure, uh, was connected to the larger Catholic community, to your parish. Um, tell us about that. Tell us about your family's relationship to the larger Catholic community. Sure. And we were always connected to the parish. You know, Catholic families, um, they have to be. But by our very nature, Catholics are connected to a larger family. Um, no one's saved by themselves. We're saved in a community. And as Catholics, particularly, we have a larger kind of a macro vision, I think, because of our connection with the larger universal church. I remember as a little kid, um, I was just smitten by John Paul II visiting Cuba. And a little kid, but I remember how excited my parents were about it. And um, just being amazed and, and just, just yes, yeah, smitten by this whole encounter of this, this elderly man visiting this communist country, transforming the nation, visiting this dictator, this brutal dictator. Um, so from an early age, I think we were well connected with the church. I served mass. I received my first communion when I was actually on my seventh birthday. It happened to be my seventh birthday. I remember that. Um, I started serving mass after that. We've always lectured and serve mass. If you go to Sacred Heart Parish today, you'll see some of the house lecturing and, and serving mass. You know, I, I, some, some people who grew up in a Catholic family and were baptized as children uh, go through a period of sort of going through the motions, and then they arrive at some point of maturity, and they're conscious of really deciding to own the faith of their family. Others, not so much. Others never know a time when they weren't close to the Lord and 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 very engaged in their Catholic identity, which, which described your experience? Well, I guess in some ways, both can describe that in some ways. I never fell away formally from the church. I was always, um, 
Catholic, I went to mass. Our parents were such that if you were under 18 and under the roof and you had to go to mass, yeah, yeah. Um, you might worship some kind of idol privately in your room, right? But if you were under the house, you had to go to Sunday mass and at least sit there with your arms folded, you know, and listen to the priest. Um, I had a, a real awakening to faith when I was 16. I It was Divine Mercy Sunday and I went and had just a really thorough general confession. Um, the priest happened to be a visiting priest that week, elderly German priest, and that was a real moment of grace for me. That was, uh, I'll never forget that, it just opened up um, my faith in a way which was different after that. It was, I don't want to say my faith was dead before that, because I was living a sacramental life, but it was, um, it was, it was just changed after that. It, it was, it was reanimated, it was, it was renewed. In, in some ways, I, Protestant might call it being born again, um, where I, I saw Jesus in, in a real living way, someone who um, needed to be the Lord of my life and, and needed to, to, to radiate through everything I did. And so in, in some sense, that was just a real turning point. And after that, I started studying why I believed what I believe, at least intellectually on paper. And um, that grew me. It made me fall in love with the, the beauty of the church. You know, some of our listeners may not be familiar with the concept of a, of a general confession as opposed to just their weekly confession or monthly confession. What's a general confession and what prompted you to do that at that time? So general confession is something where you kind of go through your whole life up to that point and you essentially mention all the sins or at least the larger sins that you committed up to that point. In some ways, just have a, just a, a clean sweep. You might do it for various reasons. Um, I did it because I was just kind of wondering if I had, you know, sometimes you grow up Catholic and you just mention these little, little sins every weekend, right? Or every, we used to go to confession, I think about every three months. Um, but I, I was thinking one day, have I ever really examined my conscience thoroughly and really been convicted by the Holy Spirit of everything? And so, um, you know, you go through different stages in your life for seven years normally, and then, and then the next seven years or you might go through the Ten Commandments. I use the Ten Commandments to go through them in depth and really be convicted of, of the ways in which I turned away from God. Um, and for a lot of people, especially if you've been away from the church for a while or you're looking to re kind of reboot your spiritual life, um, that's a real it's a moment of grace. You probably it's best to make an appointment for those type of confessions. I didn't, yeah. <laughs> but as a priest, I can tell you it'd be better to make an appointment for those confessions because naturally they, they they need to go further and in depth. Yeah. So is that something? Uh, is that this was a real turning point in your life. Was there someone in your life, a catechist, a parent, a friend, a mentor who advised you to do this? Or is this something you just came to on your own? It was actually just a moment of grace that came to me on my own uh, when I was praying one day at mass. Sometimes um, some young people have these events, sometimes at retreats, they haven't been to confession maybe for a long time and, and they, they go for the first time. But in my own life, I can't, no, I don't remember anyone advising me to do that. I never heard of it. Actually, I wouldn't have been able to describe it as a general confession. I just had a sense in my life that I needed to really um, bear everything before the goodness of God. And um, it might have been, considering back, looking back, that I knew there was Divine Mercy Sunday, and I was aware of that devotion and, and had a desire to present my whole life before the mercy of, of the Lord. That's beautiful. You know, when I was in college, I went to a, a Protestant schools before I had become Catholic. And uh, of course, we didn't have the sacraments. But in this institution, there was a chapel that was set aside for prayer. It was a prayer chapel. And uh, it was usually kept kind of dim, sort of dark. And to be honest with you, it sort of looked a lot like a Eucharistic adoration chapel without the Eucharist, you know, sort of the architecture of the thing. There was a table 
they called it an altar. It wasn't an altar, but they called it an altar. And people would go in and they would write prayer requests, prayer intentions on little sticky notes and put it on the altar. And the idea was you would go in and you would pray your own prayers. And then if you were inclined, you'd pick up these notes and read other people's prayer intentions and pray for them. And uh, I, I would go frequently and I would read. And oftentimes they really weren't prayer intentions so much as they were confessions of sin. And there were people going in appealing for prayer, for help with this weakness or help with that weakness, for absolution, for confidence, for hope. And, uh, and there, was this, there was this spontaneous need in the hearts to, uh, to just sort of bear everything in front of God and to have some tangible sense that God's mercy had been extended. And of course, it, it was years later when I became Catholic that I thought back on this experience and I said, hmm, Guy goes into a small darkened room and makes anonymous confession of sin to stranger, you know, in a box seeking some tangible sign of forgiveness. I think the Catholics have an answer to that need, right? You that's know, right. Uh, but it was uh, it was the spontaneous cry of the heart. So that's fascinating. You didn't even know what a general confession was, and yet you made one. Sure. Um, and then, how long after that did you begin to sense your call to the priesthood? It was probably about two years after that. Finished high school, started going to. Uh, in that time, after when I was 18, uh, we lived close to Sacred Heart is close to Our Lady of the Angels Monastery in Hansville, Alabama. And we would go to Mass there as well. And uh, the sister there, she asked me to work part-time in the communications office, um, giving tours, speaking on behalf of, of the shrine, etc. And so on my lunch hours, I would go in adoration in front of the Blessed Sacrament. And yeah, I was probably 19 years old when I started feeling the call of, of this desire to give my life in, in a more complete way to the Lord. And that increased at the same time that I was taking classes um, and when I was 21 and to enter the seminary. Hmm. You know, uh, in the preparation for this interview, I was reading a recent document from the Vatican on renewing the parish, the life of the parish, because we're talking about parishes this year with the year of the parish and the Eucharist. And it struck me, thinking about your experience, because I knew you'd had a connection to the Shrine of the Blessed Sacrament, uh, that this Vatican document acknowledges that Catholic shrines can function in a way that's analogous to the life of a parish. You know, they can have communities that go there for the sacraments and have a, you know, kind of a sense of belonging. And, uh, and the Holy See actually encourages the faithful to frequent Catholic shrines and rediscover that sense of being anointed uh, members of Christ's body with a special consecration in their life to serve the Lord and their neighbor. And obviously that, that was effective in your life. You know, this church is rich with opportunity. And while we're called to belong to a parish, uh, there are so many, there's so many ways that people can connect to their Catholic faith. I think it's beautiful. This story that you're telling me, these real pivotal moments in your life and your vocation really centered in these, uh, these central institutions of Catholic identity, like the sacraments, uh, like the life of a Catholic shrine, like the life of Catholic religious who would reach out to you. So we started with your family, but, uh, but now we're branching out into this larger family of the church present to you in all these different places. That's right. And, uh, and it really cultured, nurtured you and brought you to a real sense of purpose. Um, that's quite beautiful. Now, was your own family, I assume they were very supportive of you as you're making, as you're discerning these things and maybe thinking about going to seminary. Uh, was your family instrumental in that? Were they helpful to you in that? I think they were a little surprised when I, when I gave them their, it was, that was a very personal decision. I remember I didn't tell many people at all, 
before I entered seminary. And, you know, there's always doubts too. And I mean, I remember going my first year and I remember telling my parents this, I'm going there to make sure that I'm not called to be a priest. Right. Right. Um, Cause I didn't know for sure. It wasn't until I'd been in seminary about three years that I had some type of real um, conviction. And of course you don't know for sure until the Bishop ordains you, but they were always supportive. Mom and dad are very, uh, very devout and always supportive. Again, I think a little surprised at first, but, uh, but very supportive of, of that desire to discern God's call for my, for my life. You know, you just said something that struck me. I, I once asked Bishop Baker, I said, Bishop Baker, when did you know you were called to be a priest? And he said to me, when my bishop ordained me. That's right. And, you know, we, we, have, a, we have this very individualistic and subjectivist culture where we're, we're, well, I have a calling. Well, how do you know? Well, I feel it, you know. Sure. And, uh, and there is that aspect of being called to the priesthood, Lord speaking to your heart. Sure. But, but the church is also an objective authority in an objective, visible community. That's right. And, uh, and it's the church that calls us to serve the church in our particular vocation. That's right. And, and it goes, you know, both ways. I always, it always kind of makes me laugh when, when young men or women tell me that they know they're called to be marriage. They always called a marriage in the abstract. You're called to marriage with a particular individual. Right. I mean, if you're a young man, you're called to marriage with a particular young lady. So when you're completely single, you're not dating anyone, you're telling me, you know, that you're called to marriage. That always just kind of makes me smile because you probably don't know for sure because you're not called to marriage in the abstract, but to a particular woman. Yeah, it's kind of maybe like a euphemistic way of saying I'd really like to be married. Right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Which is yeah. good. That's fine. You know, I, I, I met a man one time years ago who it was a sad story. And he told me uh, he had married in the, as, in the church and he, he regretted his marriage and wished that he had become a priest. And he said that he'd missed his vocation. And I, I didn't correct him, but I thought to myself, well, no, you're missing it now. That's right. You know, this is your vocation. This is what the Lord has called you to, not to regret something that he didn't call you to. That's right. Um, you know, this New Vatican document talks about the parish says we should really think of the parish as a community of communities, right? It's not just a collection, an aggregate of individuals, but there are groups of people that come. Families are one of them. Um, since you've been in the priesthood, have you seen families really connect or fail to connect in the life of a parish in a way that you think bears mention? Sure. Yeah, for instance, the Holy Spirit, um, we have various communities within the community. Holy Spirit has five English masses on the weekends. We have two Spanish masses and, and one Korean mass. So those are three distinct groups of people. We also have a large Vietnamese community, which uh, they all attend the English mass. But a large, significant community, which is very faithful, extraordinarily beautiful Vietnamese community, um, I think within, I'll take this example, within the larger Latino community, there's, of course, various subsets. And overall, I think we've done a very good job of reaching the Mexican people. They've reached out to us, we've reached out to them. But I think of uh, the Guatemalan community, we have not done a good job of Guatemalan families. They tend to be less educated, um, less connected to the church when they arrive. And so particularly in larger cities, they tend to be in little smaller neighborhoods and they began these small evangelical type churches, sometimes just little Catholics praying together, but they almost automatically become small evangelical churches, 15 or 20 families. And so that's an example of, of families, which we haven't done a good job with, at least in this community of making them feel welcome in the larger family of the church. Not necessarily our fault, but maybe a fault of omission of not reaching out and, and finding a better way to welcome these families. 
So, uh, I mean, I guess that leads to the next question, which what, what is the proper response? What's the, what's the, uh, how do we reach them? Right, the first response, I think on the heart, should be on the heart of every person. It should be a burden. Um, when we're aware that people are not, have not found a place in the church, where, whatever that might be, whatever community they, they, they come from. Um, you can think of people that identify as, um, that have same-sex attraction, that identify as LGBTQ, maybe they consider that identity. We would say it's not their identity, but it's a problem that, that those type of people maybe don't feel that they're, that they're welcomed into the church, right? It's a problem when we see large sections of, of Latino Catholics um, not being Catholic anymore, large evangelical churches. And that should be a burden for us that communities like that haven't been presented the gospel and haven't been able to, because of whatever it might be, haven't been able to respond in a full and complete way. So I think, first of all, a burden that, that they're not being reached. And then secondly, a desire to reach them. And, and that probably, I mean, I think the apostolate of friendship is always the most important thing. Um, have they ever met a Catholic who, who loves them, who is willing to speak the truth, the full truth of the gospel to them, but in a way that, that touches their heart through the goodness of, of, our, of our life in Jesus Christ? Yeah, that's wonderful. You know, when, when Pope Francis uh, uh, was elected Pope, he, as you know, he put out a document on evangelism and he placed a heavy emphasis on, on uh, what he said, going to the peripheries. And I think, you know, obviously he had in mind, there are some, uh, you know, excluded groups from the larger civil society, immigrants, the poor, but he made it clear that there are peripheries all around us. Anybody who's alienated from the ministry of the church for whatever reason, and who's living isolated and alone, whether or not they're a member of a migrant community, whether or not they're poor or materially poor or not, if they're not being reached by the pastoral ministry of the church, then like they're up their periphery. That's right. uh, my, my wife for a long time was involved in a ministry of uh, a really kind of, uh, she was on her own sort of, not always, but she would go into nursing homes and seek out Catholic residents who hadn't been to the sacraments in five, six, seven, 10, 20 years. And, uh, and then she would ask them, would you like a priest to come see you, to hear your confession, to bring you Holy Communion? And most of the time, the answer would be yes. And then she would go and try to corral the priest into coming, you know, and she'd be <laughs> like, okay, Father, we got somebody that needs the sacraments. And she'd put them together and then leave. You know, that was just it. She was just playing matchmaker to bring the sacraments to these folks. And, sure. uh, and, and you know, it was a pastoral need. And they were there, the peripheries. And lots of, we saw a lot of people come back to the confessional after 20 years. And then they would die, you know, the next week they'd be dead. Um, but, uh, uh, and, you know, some of us can't reach out to maybe uh, Guatemalan families. We don't speak the language. We don't have a point of contact, but, um, uh, but maybe it's the nursing home next door. Maybe it's your neighbor next door. Anybody who's not being reached is, uh, is the pastoral responsibility of the whole church. That's right. And that's why the, what I call the apostolate of friendship is so important because um, anyone can get to know the people that live next to them, or they can be interested in the life of their coworker and, Get to know them. Get to know the name of the name of their children who suffered in their lives, someone who has cancer in their lives, and and pre present that opening for when we can present the gospel. Because if there's not any foundation laid, <laughs> you know, like you can't bang the Bible over people's heads like some sometimes you'll see in fundamentalist circles. It doesn't work. Uh, they have to know how much we love them and, and desire for them to be part of God's family. 
So, you know, a lot of times Catholics are intimidated when you talk about sharing their faith and uh, uh, maybe they've got a bad association with the guys who bang on your door with a Bible. Uh, maybe they just don't feel confident in sharing their faith. You know, the Catholic faith is beautiful. It's rich. It's ancient. We have all these gorgeous and, and, uh, and edifying traditions, but there's an awful lot of it. You right. know? I mean, the catechism is a big book. That's right. And most Catholics haven't, haven't read the whole catechism, and they don't feel confident to answer questions about their faith. So what would you say to somebody who's trying to engage this apostolate of friendship who maybe is a bit weak in the knees at the idea of evangelism? Not that they don't want to, but they don't feel adequate. Sure. I think some of the evangelicals do well, and, and Mormons do well, is they invite you to their church. Hmm. You know, just to go with them. I, I, the number of, of evangelicals that ask me to, to go to their church, um, even various Mormon missionaries sometimes come and uh, ask me to go to their church. And of course, their goal is to get a Catholic priest to become Mormon. Right. But I'm always impressed by by the kind of the naturalness, the organic way that they do it. Like, you know, we have we have service at three o'clock. Why don't you come by? We'll have a cup of coffee af afterward. You know, if you ask Catholics how many times they've invited a non-Catholic person to their church, every hardly anyone is going to say yes. But that's not an intimidating way. You don't have to say anything yourself, right? You can just bring them there. You can just um, accompany them. And you'd be able to take you up on it. That's why um, evangelicals and Mormons tend to have a better success, so to speak, evangelizing, is because they're not afraid to, to welcome people to, to come to church with them. You know, before I was Catholic, I attended a Pentecostal church for a while in Birmingham. And uh, the this where we would have a crucifix, they had a cross. And the cross had fluorescent lighting behind it. It was backlit. And you could flip the lights on and off. And the pastor of this particular church uh, had a tradition where at every service, he would stop pause and he would ask how many people in the in the parish and the congregation had led someone to the Lord or to church that week. And if no one could answer in the affirmative, he would turn off the light behind the cross as a sign that they had failed in their evangelistic duty. And the whole time I attended that congregation, I think and it was over a year. I think I only saw that light go off once. Wow. You know, meaning that they, they were very actively engaged in reaching out to their neighbors and inviting them in. Now, you know, looking back on it, I think that pastor was a little bit heavy handed with that. Right. Yes. You know, you could like kind of guilt people into evangelizing and that's the wrong motive. That's right. But insofar as there was a culture of evangelism and outreach, I've always appreciated that. And uh, and honestly, you know, it's that 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 drive to 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 learn my faith, to be able to share it, to reach out to other people. That ultimately led me to become Catholic. That's right. Because I wanted to explore the roots of my own faith. And I woke up one day and went, hey, I'm in the wrong church. That's right. So, um, you know, I guess as we wrap up today, in terms of sort of concrete suggestions to Catholics, uh, as families, as individuals, um, how to make the Catholic church, how to make the parish experience uh, really express its identity as a family of families. What would you say? To individuals um, or just to larger parishes? Yes. <laughs> I mean, I think I think all of us could do a maybe a, a better job of of trying to love with Jesus' heart, being aware that it's a wounded world, it's a broken world. Um, all of us are broken, and and people I think uh, in this kind of more and more post-Christian society, more people have deeper wounds and brokenness and. And we have to have a way to, to show them that even if their own family 
life has been imperfect. And a lot of people have been, you know, you'd be amazed how many young people now have not had any type of relationship with their mom or dad. They don't even know what a healthy functioning family looks like. And so the church can be that, that warm, welcoming family, which it is God's family, the body of Christ. But so how do we reach out to them um, to welcome them in love, recognizing that maybe they've never had a positive experience of a family, but that's, that's what they need. I mean, God's called us to be in communion, not just with himself, but with one another. And, and I think that starts in, in concrete ways, um, welcoming people. There's a lot of, you know, in a big parish like Holy Spirit, every, every single mass, when I look out, there's faces that I've never seen before. And a lot of those people come and they never come back. Some of them come, maybe they come every couple of months or whatever. But for us, when we look out, and it's, this is especially easy for folks who've been in a parish for 10, 15 years, where they know all the faces, right? When you see a new face to say, welcome, you know, I'm John Smith and we're happy to have you. Um, if, if I can do anything to make you feel at home, you know, please let me know. Here's my phone number. So to not be afraid to, to reach out to families, especially, you know, if they're, you know, whether that's large traditional families, a mom and three and dad and three kids, or maybe it's a single young person, or maybe it's a, um, a person with various problems or whatever, but to, to reach out and to make sure that God's family is welcoming them into the family of the church. You know, I've, I've been in ecclesial communities in the past where there was an emphasis on having a formal structure of classes or small groups um, so that you had something concrete you could invite people to, you know, I mean, rather than just saying you're welcome, how about you're welcome and we're meeting Wednesday night for such and such. Would you like to come? Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you think about the prudence of uh, really trying to lay an emphasis on that? Having, having either small groups or classes or structures outside the liturgy, uh, concrete points of reference to which you could direct somebody. Sure. No, I think that's essential. I think uh, some of the small groups that are going on right now in the diocese, the Christ Life small groups, I think we have five of them going on right now in our parish. And, and those are um, essential. Anytime you, you, we need base communities, right? Right. Um, these large communities are wonderful, but particularly in big parishes, if we don't have smaller base communities where people can share their faith, where they can receive, where they can actually form godly Christian friendships, when, it's, we're not gonna we're not gonna grow in any type of, of meaningful way. And so I think that's really important. I try to do that with young people. If I meet young people, I immediately try to place them in some form of service. For instance, if they're a young professional, what can I do to help this young professional serve um, the university students or the college students? Because service is another wonderful way to integrate people in the life of the church. It's essential form of being Christian, right? Yeah. And it it creates an automatic community of other servants serving other people but to, to find various ways to do that to have base communities to automatically welcome into them welcome them into those communities absolutely so at holy spirit at your parish what what are some of those service opportunities to which you direct young people to get them engaged in the work of the parish so a large way in which we do it is um youth ministry yep. we have a, a regular sunday night um youth group and then we have a latino youth group on Thursday night, English speaking, but Latino youth group. And uh, a lot of university students, um, young professionals that are serving in that reality. We also have college campus ministry at UAH that I can plug them into um, as well. Fantastic. Okay, so so uh, be welcoming, um, be magnanimous, uh, invite people, be sensitive to uh, their own woundedness, uh, 
many people don't have a relationship with their own families. The church can be that relationship to them. Are there any pitfalls you think we should avoid? Uh, any barriers, impediments to living this kind of welcoming life? I mean, you have to be careful, I think, of a kind of a one-size-fits-all um, approach, right? Because people are very complex, what a, what a J, especially Catholics. Right? You, look at, you look at a Catholic congregation and you see the various um, socioeconomic backgrounds, language backgrounds. What was James Joyce that said, best way to describe the Catholic Church is here comes everybody? I mean, so any type of people walk in the doors and you have to be careful not to one size fits all. But again, I think that's part of, it goes back to this individual relationship. You have to get to know this person, love them where they're at, with their wounds, with their disabilities, and to try to integrate them into the larger family, which is the body of the body of Christ. You know, as a convert to the Catholic faith, I find this uh, to be one of the most sanctifying things about being a member of Christ's body, the church, because before I was Catholic, you know, my ecclesial experience would tend to subdivide according to preference, interest, demography, political affiliation, you know, the individual congregation denominations would form around these distinct demographic units. And so you could go to church with a group of people that look just like you. Exactly. And, uh, and, you know, being Catholic, you realize, look, I'm going to have to worship with people who vote differently than I do, think differently than I do, look differently than I do, listen to different music than I do. Sure. And, uh, and St. Paul talks about that, doesn't he? And Christ there's no male, female, slave, free, Greek, Jew, we're all one in Christ. Right. Fantastic. And called to carry one another's burdens um, for each one of us to recognize the, the gifts and the weaknesses of each, each one of us and, and to, to build each other up as that body of Christ. Beautiful. Well, Father Jonathan, I think we're running out of time here, but I really appreciate your joining us and taking, taking time to talk. I know Alex Kubik has got a few words he wants to share about uh, uh, next week's show. Alex, have we got you? We've got me. <laughs> thanks for uh thanks for joining us here for uh living catholic i am going to just make sure that our technology is following suit here gotta love all of the the live streaminess that we've had to get used to in this new world here so thanks again for joining us for uh for catholic living uh, my name is alex kubik and i am the uh, director of discipleship and mission for the diocese of birmingham uh and we're glad to have you we're thankful uh, dr anders for you being with us thank you father jonathan for for joining us uh from afar and just if we could recap a little bit of those those actionable points that father jonathan gave us uh loving a wounded world with a heart like Jesus's heart. That was beautiful. Uh, another was that the, the church could be that warm, welcoming family for people who don't know what a warm, welcoming family looks like. Uh, and to be uh, mindful and intentional about reaching out to the faces that we haven't seen before. I know for me personally, that's been a really good experience going to some of our smaller rural churches where everybody knows everybody. And when you show up for the first time, they know you're not there. And so many of our communities have been so good at that. Uh, so just being mindful and intentional to recognize when somebody's new. And, uh, and then when we approach them to invite them to something specific, uh, not just a, hey, we're glad you're here, you should come, but come to this at that time uh, to be specific about that way. And, and Father Jonathan was, was just wonderful about pointing us to uh, when we invite them to something, to invite people to something that actually is a context, is a place where uh, there's the possibility of them building a truly uh, godly Christian friendship. Um, and, and, and one of those specific examples, a very tangible one was to invite people to be part of our service outreach. 
Uh, it's something that people can get plugged into that they enjoy doing. And, and that is a wonderful way to involve people into the life of the church. Uh, in our next episode next week, Dr. Anders is going to speak with Christina Simmons, who is a, a local uh, Catholic author, speaker, and uh, a mentor to people, particularly about the vocation to personal holiness. Uh, and that's what our, our discussion next week is going to be about, the vocation to personal holiness. Uh, if you enjoy this, please make sure that you subscribe to the YouTube channel. Uh, you can just hit that subscribe button that's right down below the video. Uh, and then uh, you could also hit the like button. I think the cool kids say smash the like button, right? I think that's what we're supposed to say, smash the like button. Uh, and when you subscribe, there's a little bell. If you if you click on that little bell next to subscribe, uh, it will make sure that you are notified when we go live with other videos and when other content becomes available. So please make sure that you like, subscribe, and ring the bell. Uh, if you're listening on uh, your favorite podcast channel, please make sure to, to leave us a review, uh, hit there whatever their particular like button is. And if you're listening uh, using Apple Podcasts, consider leaving a review of, of the Living Catholic uh, programming that we've been offering. That'd be great. Uh, finally, uh, if you would, wouldn't mind, please share this programming with your friends and family. Uh, you can share it by sharing links to the podcast. You can share the YouTube channel. You can share the posts that are on diocesan uh, social media, uh, or you can just send them the direct link to the video in an email. Uh, but we want to make sure that we spread this with all of our friends and family, uh, especially during this year of the parish and the Eucharist. Uh, once again, thank you for joining us for Living Catholic and uh, have a wonderful rest of your afternoon.